most patients out there who have osteoarthritis have trust and faith in their healthcare professionals. Unfortunately, there are practices that are going on in our community that can erode the credibility of those that are caring for you. For many years, there have been a number of practices, both within osteoarthritis and elsewhere in medicine, that have had good evidence to support the fact that they're either of no or little value, or they provide harm and substantial cost, or both. Now, in that category, I would include things like opioids, things like hyaluronic acid injections. And the focus of today's podcast, which is on arthroscopic partial meniscectomy. Millions of people around the world have this procedure done every year. There's clear evidence to suggest it does not provide a benefit over sham or physical therapy. It carries with it substantial harm and substantial cost. Despite good evidence supporting that and guidelines recommending against its use, it remains pervasive. We need to think carefully about the way we provide care for patients so that it's done with patients at the front and center of what we care about and that we always do what's in their best interests and ideally do them no harm and don't do things primarily because it is remunerating us or we're benefiting from that as a medical profession. It's a controversial topic, it's a difficult topic, and I'm really pleased to have a returning guest talk about this because he is a really critical thought leader in this space and someone who's done a lot of work to develop the evidence, but also hopefully disseminate some of that evidence to help you as the community of people with osteoarthritis. Hello, Teppo, and welcome to the show. Thanks, David. My pleasure. Yeah, it's great great to see you, albeit at a distance and a much longer distance than when I last saw you. Now, for all of the listeners out there, Teppo has been a guest before and he's kind enough to share a little bit more of his insights and wisdom with us today. If you'd like to go back and listen to that, that's an episode on arthroscopy with Teppo and Chris Vertulo. But in the interest of just recapping and refreshing everybody's mind, Teppo, do you want to just briefly tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you here. Thanks, David. I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training, but I don't do any surgeries anymore. I'm the professor and chief surgeon at the University of Helsinki and Helsinki University Hospital. I run our residency program here in Helsinki. And whenever I have got some spare time at work, I try to do research on cost-effectiveness efficacy of various orthopedic procedures. So basically trying to address the question, do the surgeries that we commonly perform in orthopedics, do they work or not? Which is such an important question and is really pretty much the focus of what we're going to get into today. And you're a wonderful proponent of, I guess, enumerating and elaborating on this issue of low value care and looking at methods that we can use to hopefully disseminate better evidence and get that into clinical practice. But I guess just as a way to frame the content of today's conversation, 
what is evidence-based medicine or treatment and how can people, I guess, particularly those with osteoarthritis, ensure that the treatment that they're getting is evidence-based? This is a very broad question, and I, I doubt that I am the best expert in elaborating what evidence-based medicine is. I guess most of the listeners would, would assume that everything we do in medicine is evidence-based or science-based. But to a great surprise to many, this isn't the case. Evidence-based medicine was something that was kind of discovered slowly in the beginning of 90s. It really started as a movement from a few universities in the world, one being McMaster University in Canada, one being Oxford in, in the UK. And frankly, I, don't, I can't even remember the, the exact definition of evidence-based medicine, but it, it kind of meant a transition from the old, old paradigm that doctors were just seeing the patients that they had treated and basically assessed whether or not they had done a good job to another approach where we started asking patients about how they fared after certain procedures of medical interventions like giving them drugs and started comparing doing something with doing nothing as, as we did in our trial where we did the actual surgery to half of the patients, but half of the patients without knowing actually got a placebo or sham operation. And then we followed them up very carefully by other people other than the ones that actually did the surgery and used validated questionnaires to ask about their symptoms and how they were doing. So basically, evidence-based medicine is, is a scientific approach to assessing whether the stuff we do as doctors works or not. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great explanation. And as you say, in large part, a transition from the armchair or, or godfather anecdote experience of clinicians to trying to provide much more critical and rigorous evidence to support what happens in, in clinical practice. And as you say, um, a lot of the time what happens in clinical practice does not have a good level of evidence to support the way practitioners carry out their business. How can patients who are out there try to ensure that the treatment that they're receiving is evidence-based, if they can at all? That is a fascinating question. And, and as a patient, I can totally understand that you, if you're listening to this podcast, you feel confused because you have every right to expect that the person who is treating you, whether he or she is a, a doctor or a physiotherapist or any other healthcare professional, you would expect him or her to practice science-based clinical practice, but that really isn't the case. And this is really the problem, the imbalance in the knowledge of the scientific literature behind. And, and as a patient, you have to have trust in the person who is treating you. How do you ensure that the person treating you is, is doing it in a scientific manner? I've been in the business for, for the past 30 years, and I guess it is the obligation of our system. And it, it really boils down to the public trust of our system to make 
everything we do as scientific as possible. And that, I guess, is really the point of the editorial that you asked me to write about, about the credibility and public trust of our system. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's at the nub of a number of issues that are occurring in the modern era. But I think one of the, one of the issues around the editorial that really promoted me asking you to write it was obviously your experience in doing a wonderful trial around arthroscopic partial metastectomy. And I just wonder before we get into, you know, that credibility and trust aspect, whether you can just tell us a little bit more about what is arthroscopic partial meniscectomy and what does the current evidence base say? Okay, the procedure is, is actually very simple. People with knee pain have for the past, I guess I could say 50 years gone to orthopedic surgeons to complain about their symptoms of knee pain and and then there can be slightly different symptoms like catching or locking or popping. We're talking about people in their middle age. And our approach to dealing with these patients is to examine them first and then send them for an MRI just to have a map of what is going on inside the knee. And, and then what we have discovered is that a lot of middle-aged people have abnormalities, something that we don't see in young patients. And our approach of, of considering these abnormalities in imaging as something that is causing pain, we've subjected them to a, a surgical procedure called arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, which basically means that we insert a, through a keyhole surgery, an arthroscope or a camera inside the knee and through another other cut, which, which we call a portal, we have these instruments that we can insert inside the knee and clean up things. And one of the things that we have cleaned up, polished, made it look tidier, is a structure called meniscus. And so to simplify, we've basically done something, a small surgery, I guess most people have either Un, uh, undergone the surgery, have heard of someone who has gone through arthroscopic surgery for their knee, and and most most often the procedure has been cleaning up of the tissue or arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, and that was the question, or that was the procedure that that we put under the magnifying glass in our trial. And what did your trial? And what does the sum of evidence, not just from your trial, say about the efficacy of arthroscopic partial meniscectomy? And I really appreciate that you, you're talking about the totality of evidence or all the trials. There are about 10 trials, and this makes the topic one of the best, if not the procedure with best evidence base. So the entire totality of evidence, if I can use that expression, pretty convincingly shows two things. One, that people who undergo this procedure do benefit. So usually they are people who, who give their knee on a scale from zero to 10, about a, a three or two when they see a doctor. So they are saying that they are having a lot of problems and once we do the procedure, their self-rating goes 
up to somewhere around six or seven. And the pain does the opposite from seven or six to down to two or three. This was using the old paradigm. This was a good result. So we do something and we follow up on these patients to see that, that we actually were able to, to produce an improvement. So what we did and what a lot of other people did was something called control trial where half of the people got the actual procedure while half of the people got something else. In our trial, it was placebo surgery, which was identical to the actual procedure, except we didn't touch anything inside the knee. We just kind of looked around to make people believe that we are doing the actual surgery, but we didn't touch any of the structures, while others have compared the surgery to something non-surgical, such as physical therapy, exercise therapy. And if I have to try to kind of give a very coarse overview of these studies, none of these studies have actually shown that the actual procedure, which did improve the patient's knee, improved it any more than the control procedure, whether it was SAM or placebo surgery, or whether it was just exercise therapy. And in the modern era of evidence-based medicine, it isn't enough to show that patients improve. They actually have to improve more than giving them something that is considered inert or placebo. So this kind of shows how evidence-based medicine is practiced. You have the intervention in question compared to something less or doing basically nothing, which was the case in our study. And if the intervention proves to be effective, then it has to be able to produce an effect that is larger than the control intervention. And this isn't the case with APM. So basically, APM seems to be just doing the same as making people believe that we are actually treating you. Yeah, and so on the on the back of that evidence, which has been now around, as you surmise, for at least a decade or more, guidelines have advocated that we shouldn't be doing this sort of procedure. But unfortunately, to this day, it's still quite pervasive. And one of the arguments, I guess, that surgeons have come up with, and that this was the basis that prompted me to ask you to write the editorial, was that there may be subgroups of people that do respond. What's the argument that's been made? And is there any evidence to support the notion that there are subgroups of people that may respond to arthroscopic partial metastectomy? Yeah, just just a little sidetrack. Guidelines made by people who are not in the field. So people who are expert in critical appraisal or experts in assessing treatments experts of evidence-based medicine have very strongly argued against the procedure. So they have made guidelines that actually suggest that we should stop doing this. While orthopedic surgeons have made a number of guidelines that suggest the contrary, that we should continue doing. And their guidelines have proposed or asserted that there are still subgroups, some specific patients who benefit from this surgery. 
the, the and the, this is one of the problems with with current medicine or ca- current evidence based medicine. It seems to be okay to say something pretty vague, like yeah, there are still people who benefit from this surgery, right? without the need to provide actual data to support your claim. So. For the past five years, we have had this hunt for these subgroups. People have used various different analytic approaches, trying to tease out these subgroups, trying to identify these subgroups, these asserted alleged subgroups that would benefit. And I I won't get into details about the, the proposed subgroups to benefit, but but basically there have been assertions that there are people like this or there are people like that. Now, a paper that was published in your journal or will be soon published in your journal used a very modern analytic approach where they kind of gather together a lot of data from different trials, trials that we talked about um, just before to try to tease out whether there are actually subgroups to benefit from this procedure. And again, this wasn't the first study to try to tease out these subgroups, but this used another method, another very modern method, and it again failed to identify any subgroups that benefited from the procedure. And this kind of exemplifies the problem in modern medicine. Those who are carrying out these procedures who are still arguing that th- this is a good procedure are doing just that they are not they are not just actually providing any data they are just uh, providing assertions and then other scientists have the obligation to actually carry out the study to prove to corroborate or refute these assertions and and this this paper to be published was another one of those, which again simply showed that the procedure doesn't work. We don't, we can't identify uh, consistently any any certain characteristics in patients with which would predict a good outcome. So we've so Teppo, we've got clear evidence that the procedure is no more effective than sham or physical therapy. We've got no evidence at all that there are different subgroups who are likely to find a better response. We've got a population of clinicians who are continuing to do the procedure despite that evidence. What what impact do you think that has on, I guess, the credibility of the profession and the trust that patients may have in that community of professionals if if they were aware of that information? Yeah, in some countries, they seem to be aware of that evidence. And, and I, I think if people are, are to find out that for years, I've trusted you. I've come to you as a doctor with the idea that you are going to help me with the best available evidence. You don't have anything. This isn't about you. This isn't about what you like to do or where you get money from. This is about trying to help me with the best available evidence, with the best methods. And then to only find out that no, for a decade or more, 
there was abundance of evidence to to question this procedure, but you still went on to do it for me. I mean, David, I think the implications of such thing to happen would would be I can't even think about what it it would mean. I, at least to me, the foundation of doctor patient relationship rests on trust credibility and i that was really kind of the reason why after writing quite a number of these editorials i guess i changed the angle slightly this time to not talk about that that much about the evidence anymore i think the evidence is so conclusive but i wanted to talk about the psychological issue of of losing the trust, losing the credibility as a profession, and what it could mean to patient-doctor relationship in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge issue. And I, I think examples of this are pervasive throughout medicine and surgery, unfortunately, where there's a, a procedure that's been practiced for many years that has been demonstrated now not to be a benefit, but with substantial cost and harm and you know a subgroup of professionals who stick by that procedure i I know that you in finland and others in spain have been successful in turning turning this practice around and and reducing the frequency with which this practice is provided but how can we i guess as a community of people that are responsible for disseminating evidence about care um, are have some say in policy around the world. How can we ensure that healthcare is more aligned to evidence? What what steps can be made? I think it's a huge huge problem. This has been on my mind for the past ten years. I thought that when I started as a young doctor, and it's it's been a while since I was a lot young doctor. I thought that this is this isn't about us. This isn't something, this isn't kind of a narcissistic journey, but this isn't about about understanding that this is how every field in, in, in the society evolves, like, like cellular phones. I can still remember because Nokia was the one that really actually brought the first cellular phone. It was about 10 kilos in weight, and uh, and now we have these amazing little things that we put in the, in our pockets and they can do more stuff than computers in 10 years ago. So, I mean, I thought that, that progress is inevitable, being wrong is inevitable, but it seems so hard for doctors to admit that they are wrong. And we hear these talks about autonomy of, of doctors and us being able to, to make the decisions in the end and make the judgment which implies that we have the capacity, we have the ability to make such judgments. But the more I've I've been in the business, the more I've come to the conclusion that doctors are, in the end, they are very selfish. They are very unable to, to stop doing anything that they have done in the past. And and I've I've really reached the conclusion that we have to start restricting. We have to empower something impartial, some organization that isn't so closely affiliated with the clinical practice that simply goes through the science 
and makes decisions on wh whether or not to continue doing any practices because otherwise it takes a generation to, to stop a procedure that is have proven futile. And, and Teppo, I guess just to explore what that might be, because I, I completely concur with you that I, I think at this point we've got to the level where we know that the health professionals responsible are probably not going to accept responsibility for it. This particular problem, as mentioned, is not unique to osteoarthritis, but in osteoarthritis, we have lots of examples of this, whether that be hyaluronic acid injections, whether that be the use of opioids, whether that be arthroscopy. How, how do we stop that? Um, and who, who should be responsible for that? So is that, is that a, a medical review board that makes decisions around reimbursement? Is this auditing clinical practices to identify people who are not practicing appropriately and, and coaching them, but if necessary, penalizing them? What, what do you think it's going to take in countries that haven't been able to adopt the evidence to bring them into line with what they should be doing? I think in the end it's going to be a political decision, but I, I, I'm I'm also very skeptical about the politicians because it's it's going to bring a lot of turmoil along with such a suggested change. So I wish in the end, at least in Finland, doctors have a really good reputation. I think they are still enjoying public trust. So I wish it was the doctors as a collective who would understand that. While I think the entire medical world is struggling with after COVID healthcare crisis and the funding crisis, that we would really kind of rise to the occasion and and make tough decisions. But at least in Finland, at least in the past, all of these organizations that are supposed to start prioritizing have very little power. So we should somehow find the courage within our profession to really empower people to start making these judgment calls. Um, otherwise, I mean, at least here in Finland, we are running out of money. We are in a huge crisis with the funding required for healthcare. And I think this this would still, in the end, it, I know that it would be a painful project, but it's, it would still be far less painful than having to slice from other procedures kind of in a in a very unsophisticated way by cutting on practices proven futile it would still be far less harmful and less i mean of course it it, it would hurt those individuals working on their entrenched uh, practices but as a, as a medical community i think it would still be far easier to accept the fact that yeah this seemed like a good idea but it proved not to be a good idea let's stop doing it but I, i'm sorry to tell you david that i'm quite pessimistic that medical profession is ever going to show such spine and courage to be able to start cutting on value care. I mean, we've tried it for for the past decade with little success. And I mean, people way smarter than I have tried it. You've probably given it a lot of thought. 
I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm not disagreeing with your philosophy here at all, Tepo. I think from the perspective of the medical communities responsible for providing the procedure, to my way of thinking, they've had ample time to digest the evidence and implement that evidence. And it's been well disseminated. There's been no shortage of dissemination efforts. So the the evidence is widely known. And I think the purveyors of, in this instance, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, but for that matter, whether it be opioids or hyaluronic acid, are well aware of the evidence and they're flying in the face of that. And they do so because it's entrenched in their practice and they were enumerated for it. Um, and I think sometimes to change, it's really, really hard. So they've had the opportunity. My take on this is that, well, we do have good policymaking authorities responsible for reimbursement. We withdraw reimbursement for this type of practice. So if we know someone's over 50 and they've got a meniscus tear that's degenerative and unless the knee is locked, you know, they should be having non-operative care and you don't reimburse for the operative care. And then if people continue to find a way to get reimbursed, you start auditing practices and do so from the scientific societies so that that way from the professional society, they're writing letters to their peers, to their colleagues, advocating that they shouldn't be doing this practice anymore over time. But at this point in time, it's being done to my way of thinking passively. So it's basically saying you've got the evidence, adopt the evidence, but there's no what if, there's no carrot, there's no stick as a consequence. And I think we need carrots and sticks to change professionals' behavior because you know it's it seems so entrenched. And you know, you've been successful in Finland, and as I said, others have been successful in Spain, but there are little pockets of success, but there are huge wastelands of waste and harm and substantial costs that we just need to fix because you know there's no better time than now as you said every economy around the world is suffering healthcare resources are really you know a precious resource and we just can't afford to waste it on this it's just you know it, it calls for us to do better so anyway that's my little uh, gospel passage. I'll get off my soapbox for now. <laughs> you probably have something a whole lot more insightful to say. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think one of the problems, and I, it, it really goes back to medical schools. As doctors, most of the youngsters that get into this business really come for the right reason. They want to help. But when they are taught, they are taught by the, at least in Helsinki and in Finland, they are taught by the top level experts who are and are supposed to be very enthusiastic and excited about the stuff that they are doing. The problem is that evidence-based medicine and critical appraisal isn't really taught in medical schools. So they are, they are basically, they are just like enthusiastic paddle players or squash players they think that the sport that they are doing is the best sport in the world and it, it is heartbreaking to hear that the stuff that i've been doing isn't actually working the way i thought it is working but that is something that has to be brought into medical school at least it helped me to see the evidence not just to hear but to, to see the evidence that if you split medicine 
very coarsely into three categories. The procedures, the interventions, the medical treatments that are somewhat beneficial, the ones that are very little beneficial or low value care, and the ones that are harmful. Right now, the current estimates are that 60%, six zero, is the percentage of procedures that can be considered by some standards to be at least somewhat beneficial. 30% belong to the group, which are clearly low value care. And then we have that 10%, 10% of medical interventions widely implemented, widely in use are actually harmful. So 60, 30, 10, uh, 10, and if we can really drill into those that 40% or roughly half of the stuff that we are doing, let's keep doing the stuff that, it, that has at least some evidence that it is beneficial. And by doing that, we would cut enormously in healthcare spending. We would really increase the credibility the public trust in our profession teppo i think that's a good place to stop thank you so much for your time your insights for writing the editorial and i hope you continue to look after yourself and I'll hopefully be in touch again soon thanks david it just again as always a pleasure talking to you so for anybody who's out there who's had an arthroscopy that's benefited from it that's okay if you've had an arthroscopy and you've been harmed and or it's cost you a lot of money, I'm sorry that that's happened to you. As I said today, really the focus was on trying to dig into an issue which is still pervasive that causes our community harm, erodes the trust in the credibility of medical professionals, carries with it substantial cost both to you and to the society as far as medical costs are concerned as well as a real risk of harm. We need to stop it. There is no benefit to be gained. There's no subgroups to be found. So for those of you who are out there who are practicing the procedure, we know that it's not providing your patient's benefit. Hopefully by virtue of improving the knowledge of healthcare professionals coming forward, this practice will continue to change. But ultimately I actually think it's gonna require policy change and investment in disinvesting in this care and providing carrots for better quality care. Again, I hope you found today's topic helpful and insightful. I really appreciate the opportunity to share these conversations with you because I think it's critical for you becoming better informed and you making better decisions about your own healthcare. So between now and when we next have an opportunity to have a meaningful discourse, please do take care of yourself. And thank you so much for your attention. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. 
anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.